Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 20, through verses chapter 4, verse 1. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to follow along, please do so. Children, obey your parents in all things, for it is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ." But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that also you have a master in heaven. So we've been working our way through the short letter of Colossians, and we're wrapping up chapter 3. All through Colossians chapter 3, we've been talking about sanctification, the transformation from the old nature controlled by sin to the new nature now controlled by the Holy Spirit. God has created us into something different, and now He expects us to live like that. We've been personally transformed by Christ. Our old self, controlled by sin, has been put to death, past tense, that was taken care of at the cross. And we have been raised with new life. When we have accepted Christ, we are raised with a new life, with a new nature, now controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we now have, whether we want to believe it or not, we now have victory over sin in our life. We don't have to sin. God always provides a way out. He gives us the way. He gives us the tools. He gives us the weapons, which is the Word of God, which we're supposed to use to have that victory and then live in that victory. One article I was reading this past week in context of preparing the message for today said something interesting, and the author wrote, I think if we were to analyze a problem in the world and the impact that Christianity can have on society, we would agree that the major problem in the world is very simple. It's easy to analyze. The major problem in the world is people. I don't think we'd argue about that. If if we could just rid the Rid, uh, if we should get rid of the people, he said, we could basically get rid of all the problems. Well, for now, God's not doing that. In our morning classes, we're talking about the day that he is going to do that and in the very end. But he's offered another solution. Do you know what that solution is? It's us. We are part of that solution. You see, it isn't enough for a person to accept Christ and be satisfied with that and just have that personal relationship and that personal salvation. God expects that change in us. He expects that transformation. He expects that sanctification, being made holy, to have an effect on everyone we come in contact with. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, if you remember briefly, where Paul describes how, if that change is really happening, how that should affect others. 
He said this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we're all united with Christ. If any comfort from His love, we should all be one in His love. If any common sharing in the Spirit, we've got one Spirit living in us. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Then he says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, and this is generally among a body of believers, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then we have that great passage where Jesus is the epitome of how that works. And he sets himself, he sets the, his Godship, if you will, his divinity aside and loves to the point of giving up everything for the lives of others giving up even his own life. And then we have this great verse that we usually read all by itself without realizing that it's attached to all those other verses that we just read. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes." Now, we usually take, look at that verse and talk about that being you know, the truth of the gospel making, and making that a reality in our life. Fighting temptation, uh, putting off the old self, and li living in victory, and we say that working out our salvation is working to try to put all that into practice in our lives and put into practice a spiritual change that has taken place in our, in, in our lives, and I'm not negating that. But there's a bigger context here that Paul has that verse in. Verse 12 starts with the word, therefore. What's he referring to? He's referring to those first 11 verses. He's saying, in light of the fact that Christ gave himself up, literally, for the loves of, love, lives of others, in light of the fact that we share in the same spirit, in light of the fact that we have the same love and being one in spirit and in one mind, in light of the fact that we are not to be looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others, in light of the fact that we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who unconditionally agape loved us while we were still sinners and died for us, therefore... Verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. What is His good purpose? To make our lives better and easier and happier? That's maybe the consequences of the new life, but that's not the purpose. Luke 19.10 gives us a purpose. For the Son of Man came to do what? Seek and to save the lost. That's the purpose. That's His purpose, and we have become part of His purpose. Go and make disciples of all nations. The salvation that starts in the heart needs to work itself outward to touch the lives of all those around us. Work out your salvation. In John 13, 35, Jesus said to his disciples, By this all will know that you are my disciples. How? 
if you have agape love for one another. The only, that only happens if that sacrificial, unconditional, giving life, love is working itself out of you and touching the lives of those that are around you. And that starts in the home and then works outward from there. Once my life is changed and transformed, that should affect the way I think about and treat my wife. And that should affect the way my wife thinks about me and treats me. Love, give, sacrifice, and respond in love and respect in love. Then Paul says the same sanctified life must affect the way that we raise our children and how the child then should respond to the parents. He then goes on after that to point out that that sanctified life should work, how that sanctified life should work and how we treat those who work for us or that we work for. That's salvation working itself outward. One commentator says that it has tremendous social ramifications to become a believer because a new person radiates the newness of that life into the world. Jesus put it this way. He said, we are salt and light. We affect society. Let me give you a couple examples from our time on the mission field. I may have shared one of, this example, one of these examples a long time ago. But we had a language study, as you know, and one of the classes, Nancy was teaching uh, two, two Indian ladies um, basic, basic English. They, they knew nothing. And so they started out in basics, and part of the week's classes was a conversational class. And she had this little box of conversation starters. They had questions on each card, and she allowed the ladies to pick, pick a card out, and they would read the question, and then they would try to practice their English as they talked about that topic. And this one day, uh, one of the ladies picked out this, this card, and the question was, if you could be born into any other culture, which would it be? And then she said, huh, that's can be interesting, you know, maybe since we are American, maybe American, maybe European, maybe, you know, something. But the lady that picked that out, she read the question and her immediate response was Christian, Hindu lady. And my wife said, why? <laughs> you know what her answer was? Because of the way the husbands treat their wives. Isn't that interesting? That's not how their husbands treated them. They saw how I... I I wasn't doing anything on purpose, didn't have the plan and strategy, okay, I, I'm going to treat my wife a certain way so that they can see. It's the way I treated my wife. They saw that, and they longed for that, and they equated that with Christian culture. We were teaching TEE in West Africa, in Ivory Coast, uh, theological education by extension, and I love going to those classes. You can see I'm a little bit younger there. Yeah, that was a few years back. Uh, but one of the courses that I, I loved teaching was called Christian Marriage. And we, we got to talking about it, and one of the conversations that came up was how the husbands would beat their wives. And I looked at the husband. I mean, th th these are leaders in the church, okay? Guys, seriously? Yeah, we have to do that sometimes. So I turned to the wives. It was a husband-wife class going on. Turned, Is this what happens? Oh, yeah, they, they, uh, they have to do that sometimes. You know, we, we need it. 
what? <laughs> no, 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 no. And, you know, so we tried to teach them about what a, a Christian looked like. And they said, oh, that, that, that's American marriage. No, that's biblical marriage. We're to love. The folks, societal norms, cultural norms need to change in light of the gospel. But that change must come from within and directed by the Holy Spirit. If people were watching, I'm going to make this a little bit personal for you. If people were watching a reality show of your marriage at home, what would they see? Would they see Christ? Would they see agape love being exercised? Christianity is dead unless it's relational. Our faith is dead unless it is working out in action. James tells us that. And the first place in which it's worked out should be in the home, the most intimate personal relationships that we have. Now, when Paul was writing this letter, culturally speaking, he was instructing believers in how a sanctified life should change the home, the most intimate part of a person's life. There's a head-on confrontation here of the main elements that are going to make the home a kind of relational place it ought to be. Now, we have to remember that Paul was writing to believers in the first century. And in the first century, there were three relationships within the home. Husband and wife, parents and children, and masters and slaves. Home relationships. In fact, hundreds of years before Christ, Aristotle said the same thing. He said, there are three great major uh, three great pairs of mutual relationships in the home, husband and wife, parent, child, master, servant. Paul wants to show us that Christianity is going to affect the home and that being a new person, putting off that old self, putting on the new, that person who is ruled by the peace of Christ, that person who lets the message of Christ dwell in them richly, that one who is doing it all in the name of the Lord Jesus... That kind of person is going to have a huge and dramatic impact on the home. See, Christianity introduces something new into the home which changes everything. First of all, Christianity has introduced a new presence into the home, and that presence is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the end of verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for his, this pleases the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you also have a master in heaven. It's all centered around Christ. So we have a new presence of the home, and with that presence we have a new power in the home. The power of Christ is not, not only changes lives personally, but it changes the dynamics of the life in a home. In Ephesians chapter 1, 19, uh, Paul talks about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, he says, is the same as the mighty strength that uh, God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That's the power we have to change life in our homes. Not only is there a presence and a new power, there's a new purpose in our home. Paul says in verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the purpose for which we do everything. It's no longer for ourselves. 
That's the old way. We now do everything for Christ. That's the new purpose that we have. There's one more thing that's introduced into our homes. There's a new pattern. There's a new pattern in our home, and that pattern is Christ and his kind of love. Husbands, we talked about this last week, agape your wives, just as Christ agaped the church. Over all of our relationships, that overwhelming, unconditional, sacrificial love should permeate all of our words, our attitudes, our emotions, and our actions within every relationship. Now, in that love, we've talked about the concept of submission and how that needs to be part of all of our lives, men and women, in the body of Christ. And the fact that we are to, according to Philippians 2, in humility, value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of you to interests of the others. Then we spent all of last week looking at how husbands are to love their wives with Christ's love, and their responsibility was to do what? Love and give. Love and give. Remember, love and give. Sacrifice, love and give. And the submission of the wife is an act of purposeful responding to the husband from that loving and giving in that same kind of love from Christ. The next relationship now that Paul deals with is parents with children. Let's look at verse 20, 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That's a wonderful hammer that we love using over our children. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Oh, bummer. Or they will become discouraged. Let's take a look at, at, first of all, at the two words, children and fathers or parents here uh, is used by Paul. Children is a Greek word, technon, which is a very general word for child. Kids tend to think that when they reach 16 years old, they don't have to obey their parents anymore. Or maybe it's 18, or, or if it's really strict, maybe it's 21. But the word technon basically refers to anybody who is still under parental guidance. You stop being a child biblically when you go out to establish your own independence and your own life. As long as you're in the home, as long as your parents are still responsible for you, it's their home. As long as you're under their leadership and control, you have one command. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. As a young person, do you want to please the Lord? Ask that question of yourself. Do you want to please the Lord? Obey your parents. What causes so much strife and angst in homes today? It's that ugly head of selfishness that keeps rising up, which Paul calls idolatry. It's interesting that the verb form of the word to obey gives, gives the meaning to continue to obey. It's not a one, one and done. It's here in Colossians 3. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. It's in Exodus chapter 20. It's in Exodus chapter 20, two times. Leviticus chapter 20, Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 6. There is nothing new here. This is, this is the same teaching from old to new. It's a spiritual principle laid down in Scripture. And Scripture is very strong about this. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful, 
Those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. Wow. Then in verse 15, referring to the children, the horse leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. (laughs) This is the only time in Scripture that this particular Hebrew word for leech is used. Apparently, there are a number of various species of leeches in the marshes of Palestine. Now, I've got bugs and creepy crawly things don't bother me, but leeches really sketch me out. We had a hike in India. We were up in the mountains, and we did a lot of hiking, and there was a hike to, it was named Leech Shola. I never went. Not once. All the other hikes did not go to that one, because every classmate of mine that went through that shola, that marshy area, on the other end, they had to take off their sneakers, take off their socks, and they would find two, three, sometimes four leeches somehow, never knew that happened, attached to their feet. Creepy things. But this particular leech that the writer of Proverbs refers to specifically is one known for the coarseness of its bite and is therefore not used for medical purposes. This particular word for leech, it says, may be an Aramaic loan word meaning, get this, vampire-like demon. (laughs) That's a good description for a leech. From what I read, apparently it has two teeth that sink into the horse and suck the blood out. And Proverbs says this, there are children like that who are only trying to get what they can get. They are leeches in the family. That's pretty strong. God's got some strong things to say about that. Listen to verse 17, same chapter. The eye that mocks the father, that scorns an aged mother, will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. God is going to hold children and young adults responsible for their actions towards their parents. There are either going to be dire consequences or there are going to be amazing blessings. Paul repeats the same instruction in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, 1, in, in which he refers back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Listen, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he refers back to Deuteronomy, Honor your father and mother, which is a first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Those are the blessings that God promises for obedient children. You know, in our culture, older people are often, often looked down on with disdain and they begin treating you as a child. <laughs> My wife and I have been to a couple of restaurants where waitresses have come in, see my gray hair, and she goes into this, hi, little children's voice. Hi, how are you? How can we take care of you today? What would you like? Oh, stop it. We don't get stupider the older we get. The older we get, believe it or not, the wiser we get. Other cultures acknowledge this. In Ivory Coast, as well as other African cultures, They hold their men in high esteem, looking to them for wisdom. And they use the term le vieux, the old man, the old one. 
as a term of respect. And the Levieux will be sitting under the shade of a big mango tree, and people will go to him looking for wisdom, looking for answers, getting advice. Their wisdom is not beyond their years. Their wisdom is because of their years. Sit down and talk to Roy someday. He's got amazing wealth of knowledge and understanding from the years of studying Scripture. I was thinking of getting a nice easy chair, putting it out here under the willow tree next, next to the... <laughs> and put Roy's name on it. When we were looking for a church with our daughter before we came this way, we attended a young, vibrant church, a lot of young families and, and children. But she was looking, looking around, and this was for their family, because we knew we weren't going to be staying there with them uh, too much longer. But she was looking around and said, Dad, there's no older generation here. There's nobody to give wisdom and, and, and guidance and, and uh, encouragement and direction. I was talking with a pastor just a few weeks back who, is, who has a growing congregation with a lot of young adults, and they've got a lot of young marrieds. And he, he told me that there, a number of the young families have come up and said, Pastor, we miss the older generation and the wisdom that they bring. God's spiritual principles are there for a purpose. The young are to learn from the older. And fathers... Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The word for father here is pater. It's a Greek word, pater. And it literally means father because a father is the head of the household. However, I believe Paul is actually probably referring to parents here with the responsibility for their children, with the father being the ultimate authority. And I say that because in Hebrews chapter eleven twenty three, the same word is used, the exact same Greek word is used when he says, by faith Moses' parents, pater, same word, hid him for three months after he was born. So I think we can substitute parents here in this verse and still be faithful to Scripture. Parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The word used for embitter is interesting. I looked it up in the Amplified Bible. Every once in a while, you can go to the Amplified Bible, and it's it's kind of fascinating the way they, they, they describe it. It says, Fathers, do not provoke or irritate or fret your children. Do not be hard on them or harass them, lest they become discouraged and sullen and morose and feel inferior and frustrated. Do not break their spirit. It's a good description. How can we not do that? Remember how how we're supposed to love our wives? Remember how we're supposed to love one another? That's how we're supposed to love our children, with the same agape love. We could go into all kinds of thou shalt nots for parenting. You can find all kinds of them (laughs) online. All kinds of things there, overprotection, favoritism, depreciating their worth, discouraging them, never showing appreciation or love or affection to them, not providing their needs, didn't say wants, not providing their needs, lack of standards or boundaries, constant criticism, which is putting them down and not lifting them up, neglect, life becomes busy, overdiscipline, underdiscipline. My goodness, look at our society today. Lack of discipline, lack of parental guidance. Our society has stepped away from and actually rejected God's 
direction and the order that God has put into place. And when we step out of God's order, things go badly. And the only way we can get back into his orders is to allow the Holy Spirit to have control of our lives and our relationships. And if we parent from the aspect of agape love, loving and giving and sacrificing of ourselves, the obedience from our children will come so much easier. And this can be done because, again, into those relationships is introduced a new presence, Jesus Christ, a new power from the Holy Spirit, a new purpose found in Christ, new model to be followed, the model of Jesus Christ himself. And then Paul, as he wraps up this chapter, comes to an interesting topic. Verse 22 through the first verse of chapter 4. Slaves, <clears throat> obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the, excuse me, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So let's talk about that a little bit. Then we'll see what kind of application we can pull from it, since we no longer are in a society where we have masters and slaves. In Paul's day, slavery was an established institution. There were about 50 million people in the Roman Empire, and they estimate that there were 10 to 20 percent of that were slaves, which is uh, 5 to 10 million slaves. And because most of these slaves were people who had been captured from battles with other countries, other nations, other areas around, Many of them were actually well-educated already and who had then been given great responsibilities in the homes of the wealthy. And in many homes, it was the slaves who helped to educate and discipline the children. So it's been asked, so why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? Well, there's a couple reasons that come up. One is actually very practical. The church at that time was a very small minority. They had no political power to change anything, and especially an institution that had been in place for, for probably hundreds of years. It's actually built into the social order of the day. Now, Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to try to achieve their freedom if they could. But he never advocated rebellion over or overthrow of the existing order. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Called to what? Called to Christ. When you became a Christian, were you a slave then? Do not let that trouble you. Don't make that a huge issue. But if you are able to gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He didn't say run away. He didn't say rebel. The other thing to remember is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the early church was to do what? It was to spread the gospel message and win souls, not get involved in social action. 
If the church had jumped right in to fight the system, they would have been branded as an anti-government sect, which would have greatly hindered their efforts in spreading the gospel and church expansion. Now, while it's good and right for Christians to get involved in the promotion of honesty and morality and the white way of life in government and society, social action should never be replaced or should never hinder the mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I think there are some churches that have gone to the whole social action aspect and forgotten the spreading of the gospel aspect. So I think Paul's instruction in Philippians 4.12 applies to this situation. I have learned, Paul said, the secret of being content in any and every situation. Where does the contentment come from? It comes from having Christ in your heart. It comes from within. Contentment comes with a changed heart, and it comes from Christ. So Paul is saying that whatever situation you find yourselves in, when we give control to the Holy Spirit, the change in our heart needs to be translated to a change, to a transformation in our minds and the way we think and the way we act. Thus his instruction in these verses. Colossians 3, 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. He's talking to believers here. And do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The crux of that whole passage there is right there in the middle. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Why? Because it is the Lord Christ now that you're serving. And the flip side is also true for the masters of slaves. That's verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Christ is the master's master. In everything they were to do, in everything that we do, we are to do it for the Lord. The Lord's name ought to be lifted up and honored. Our lives ought to reflect Christ and His agape love in all of our relationships. And that's how this principle can easily be uh, transferred over to the situation of employer-employee. As employees, we should never just do enough to get by or try to cut corners, try to take longer breaks. Everybody else is doing it. Rather, in our work ethic, we should not only do our work well, we should strive to be excellent, to go above and beyond. Because our true employer is whom? It's Christ. It's the Lord. He has placed us where we are, and therefore our attitudes and our work should be reflecting Him. As employers, we are not to be harsh with our employees, expecting longer hours than they're being paid for. Wages should be fair, if not a little generous, trusting the Lord in that. Employers ought to show care and concern for their lives, expressing God's love for them. What do people see in us? You know, in the world of the New Testament times, a wife with this sanctified attitude, a husband with this sanctified attitude, Children with this attitude, parents with this attitude, uh, masters with this attitude, slaves with this attitude would absolutely be a dramatic, shocking reality in that society. And that's how change starts. 
When we were in India and starting our language center, we hired Indian employees, teachers, men that would clean, clean our center and straighten things up. We, but we treated them well. We treated them equally, even though they were from different castes and different economic backgrounds. We paid them fair wages and then some, and we paid them on time every month. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but over there, that was a big deal. We celebrated their birthdays with a special party for each one. Uh, one of the men, he had no idea when he was born. That's quite typical, especially in the lower castes of, of uh, village people. So we picked a date, and we celebrated his birthday every year on that date. We worked within the caste system while at the same time showing that caste didn't matter to us. We had a Brahmin who was the highest caste, and we had a very low caste employee as well. But we treated them equally. We treated them with respect. Santram, he was the lower caste uh, gentleman that we hired to make us tea, make us coffee, and, and clean the floors, and uh, reset up the tables, and, and things of that sort, and, and to clean the bathrooms. We had a couple bathrooms there, and they, they needed to be cleaned uh, periodically as well. About six months into our business there, um, one of our Hindi teachers, um, a gal came into my office and said, sir, can I talk to you a minute? I said, sure. She said, Santram is really upset. I said, really? Why? Because it really bothers him that he has to clean the bathrooms. I mean, he, he was a lower class, that was part, but he wasn't that low. There was a caste lower than his caste, and they were the ones that cleaned bathrooms. His caste didn't clean bathrooms. And he was doing it because I had asked him to, but it really bothered him because that was beneath him. So I apologize. My cultural knowledge wasn't that, that uh, far along there. And we hired somebody that it was their very low caste person uh, that went from business to business to business to business. That's as, as all she did. She cleaned bathrooms. That was normal. So we worked within this, in the caste system, and we brought her in uh, a few times a week to come and clean our bathrooms as well. We would bring them into our office periodically to see how they were doing. How was your family? What's going on? We would ask if they wanted, wanted us to pray for them. And they began coming to us and asking us to pray. Our, our, uh, we, Shubi, our, our first uh, receptionist, she came one day and said, Sir, my mom asked me if you would pray for... Really? I never met her mom. But Shubi had been talking about it. She was our first office manager, and she called me up one evening after hours, called me up at home. Sir, I got a question. I said, what's that? Why does God always answer your prayers? <laughs> oh my goodness, the door was wide open. What an opportunity to share with them the power of Christ and who Christ is in us. But by showing them Christ's love, we treated them with Christ's love. Not only did we build great relationships with them, and have moments to share the gospel. But we got great work out of them because we're treating them with love. 
when they celebrated my birthday on, uh, on the envelope of my birthday card, Sona, our second office manager, wrote this. Dear sir, most bosses are preachers, but you are a true leader. Most bosses are just managers, but you are a mentor. Most bosses arrogantly demand respect, but you deserve it. As we look back, we realize that our employees saw and were affected by the way we treated them. This was not a strategy that we went into, but we realized that that sanctified life, that changed life by Christ, they saw that happening. Students saw and were affected by the way I treated my wife. That's what Paul is doing and saying here in Colossians, work within the system, but do it from the heart out. We need to work out our sanctification to those around us in whatever situation we find ourselves and I think that the, uh, the reason that the church in many ways has become so ineffective in our culture is because so many church people are not living the sanctified lives that God has provided. One commentator wrote, if Christianity is to affect our world, it will affect the world from the vantage points that affects the home. That's where it starts. And it all goes back to the same thing. Verse 1 of chapter 3, if, if you're risen with Christ, live it. Put off that old self. Put on the new self. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Verse 17, let the name of Christ guide you. And the result is going to be that you're not only going to be a new person, but a new wife, a new husband, a new child, a new parent, a new employer, and a new employee. And I really believe that if homes can become what God wants them to be, they can then become the catalyst to change up a messed up world that's around us. Missionaries come across these messy issues all the time in other cultures. In the culture of Ivory Coast, polygamy is normal. Husband can have three or four wives. Never works the opposite way, but husbands can have three or four wives. So what do you do? Lead them to Christ and tell them to divorce three of their wives? And ruin those three women's lives? They'll never get married. They'll be outcast socially. Our focus has to be to see hearts transformed and then allow God to make the changes. Oftentimes a change comes in the next generation. What do you do with the caste system in India? With upper caste and lower caste? They don't associate with each other. They don't make friends, they don't fellowship, they don't eat together, they don't invite each other over to homes, they, they don't gather together, they have their separate functions. Do you attack the caste system? No, you attack the heart. <laughs> you attack the heart and allow the Holy Spirit to make those changes. And He does, even in the caste system. We've been in churches in India where they've got upper and lower caste people. They are fellowshipping together. They have potluck dinners together, for goodness sake. The Holy Spirit changes that. God can change even the caste system. Why? Because in Christ there is neither what? Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's no male, female. There's no upper caste and lower caste. There's no upper class. There's no lower class for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God can do that. Therefore, love one another and work that sanctification out from your lives to others. I want to close with a quote from 
a professor of New Testament theology of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary by the name of A.T. Robertson. And he says this, and I quote, Real Christianity is both a doctrine and a life. Mere belief is dead without life as proof. Real spiritual life is impossible without vital contact with God and Christ, and our dealings with others become the final proof of our real connection with Christ. Living out that sanctified life. In a moment, we're going to be singing a song called, Jesus, You Are My Life. And I hope that's true. Our conquering king, the third verse, when we get to that third verse, listen to those words as you sing them. O conquering king, conquer my heart. That's where the conquering needs to take place. And make me a pleasing gift to God. My love for you will never die. Jesus, you are my life. A pleasing gift to God is a conquered heart working itself out in that sanctified life to others. And I trust and pray that that is our desire and that is our prayer for ourselves. Father, this morning, we thank you that you can and have conquered our lives. And I pray that we would just realize that we... I don't know, just just get a greater understanding of, a realization of what that really entails, that we have this new life already. We have a new new character, um, a new nature that is controlled now by the Holy Spirit, and we can live in victory. And not only are we supposed to enjoy the victory ourselves, but we are to share that with other people. Our lives should be showing that agape love that you first showed us, and we are to show that to others. So, Father, I pray wherever we are in our relationship with you, that you would take us to the next step. And let us put that in, into practice. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.